Welcome to Inside Economics. I'm Mark Sandy, the Chief Economist of Moody's Analytics, and I'm joined by my uh, two co-hosts and colleagues, uh, Chris Dorides. Chris is the Deputy Chief Economist, and Ryan Sweet, sorry about that, Ryan. Ryan is the Director of Real-Time Economics. And hey, Chris, have you noticed uh, Ryan's been kind of trash-talking me on Twitter? Have you not trash-talking? Well, uh, I'm not on Twitter, so... Uh, oh, that's right. I'm, You're not on Twitter. I'm in, uh, on Twitter. I'm in the dark. What are you referencing? My tweet last night where... I was getting ready for our stats game. Yeah, yeah. You you said you're gonna. I said you're, your hot streaks got to come to an end. Yeah, that's. I call that uh, trash talking. Oh, uh, <laughs> if you think that's trash, wait, just wait. Oh, is that right? Mm. Well, I, I wasn't going to engage because I knew I'd just lose badly if I. Tr- oh no, we'll keep it tr- we'll trash keep it talking nice. contest with you. Mm. You know, because I, you know, I follow the um, thumper principle. Do you know the thumper principle? You ever heard rabbit? of rabbit? Yeah, thumper. Yeah, Bambi. Bambi from Bambi. All right. You know Bambi? You don't yeah, know, I know Bambi? Bambi? I know oh, Bambi. Okay, Bambi. Yeah. Thumper, Thumper said, I believe he said, I said, I think he said this to Bambi. I'm not sure. If you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. That's what he said. I, you really don't follow that. You, I know you don't follow that. <laughs> no, you that's, don't. That's my point. Listen to any of our podcasts. I'll, I don't follow you, that? No, a- absolutely not. What do you think, Chris? You, you like to trash talk on the uh, podcast. <laughs> I think he's got a point. Yeah, mm-hmm. you've got a point. Yeah, I, I, uh, well, that we got a, we've got a, a, another guest. We've got Nuriel, Nuriel Rabini. Nuriel, it's I, good to have you. Such a pleasure <laughs> to be with did, you. On this podcast. Did you did you did you know the thumper? Did you watch Bambi when you when you were a kid? Did that movie? Uh, ever- I, I did when I was a child, but I didn't remember the principle. So <laughs> okay, <laughs> <laughs> that, that was one of my favorite movies, Bambi. I still fondly remember that. Uh, Nuriel uh, is uh, uh, Professor Emeritus from New York University. Well, everyone knows Nuriel. Let me just say that. Um, uh, I think uh, Dr. Doom uh, <laughs> applies. And we'll get to all of the doom and gloom. And, and should I say Nuriel or ask Nuriel, are you good with that Dr. Doom kind of a character? Well, usually I say I'm not uh, Dr. Doom, I'm Dr. Realist because I'm neither pessimist they're optimist. Uh, I try to figure out the world there's going to be. But since I see many downside risks, usually I'm skewed on the downside. That's why. Plus, you know, Dr. Doom sounds better than Dr. Realist. So yeah, that's oh, yeah. <laughs> rolls off the tongue. Much better marketing. Right, exactly. yeah. Yeah, rolls off the tongue. So, so you're, you were a longtime professor at NYU. Now you're emeritus. You, you've founded your own firm which I yeah. believe you recently sold, and now you have a, a new firm. Yeah. Uh, and of course, you've uh, been doing many, many things over the years. Uh, uh, you know, obviously, uh, very engaged in the discussion around what's going on in the global macro economy. And you have a new book coming out, or uh, yes, yeah. yes, it'll be published at the end of the year. I finished the draft, but now between copy editing, typesetting, and publication, it takes about six months. So. The final draft is there, but uh, it'll be published towards December or early January. We'll Good. see. And can I ask? Is it what? What is it? I'm I'm sure it's about the global macro economy and where it's <laughs> headed. But is that right? I mean, what are you what are you what are you writing about? Well, the yeah. title of the book is actually "Mega Threats." Threat. And uh, there was a famous book, I think, uh, in the '80s by John Nesbitt, the futurist, titled "Mega Trends." Mm. That book was about how much technology and other things going to change the world for the better. Uh, this book is instead is about all the things can go wrong. 
And uh, I've become a little bit maybe too ambitious because, of course, I'm an economist, so I talk about all the traditional economic and financial risk, you know, debt, uh, private and public, inflation, financial crisis, you name it. But then I see that around the world there are other types of uh, risk uh, that have also economic and financial consequences. So there's a chapter, of course, on global climate change Mm. and whether we resolve it or not using economic analysis. Uh, Another one on global climate change, one uh, about uh, AI, robotic and automation and the threats to jobs and labor income. Uh, Another one about the rise in income and wealth inequality leading to uh, populism and threats to liberal democracy. Uh, Another one about uh, strategic rivalries between US and China, but not just US and China, but US and the West and China and its own allies being Russia, Iran, North Korea. Uh, another chapter about the risk of deglobalization. So, of course, there are books on each one of these topics, but the right. way I think of it is they are all interconnected to each other. So it's like a 10 by 10 matrix. Every one of these threats affect the other one is affected back. So I was trying to, in a holistic way, to think about all the things that can actually doom us, not only on the economic side, but also technologically, pandemic, uh, climate change, politics, geopolitics. And they're all interconnected with each other. Well, so, it sounds like a great book, but it also sounds like you need to have a you know a stiff drink between chapters. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, from Doctor Doom, maybe Doctor Apocalypse. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> wow. Gonna, yeah, me, or Doctor Catastrophe. <laughs> and that's that's coming out in uh, the end of this at year. The end of the year, yeah, yeah. But the, the the book is not deterministic. At the end, there are two chapters. They say there is a, a road that takes us to doom and gloom, and there is another road in which. Uh, we do the right things, of course, we can avoid the most of these risks. So uh, oh, cool. the outcome depends on the right policies, of course. Well, maybe we can talk about that too, because that would be really, really uh-huh. good to do. Um, well, well, perfect. Is and, and you know, uh, we have something in common. Yeah, that we're both uh, Iranian Americans, American oh, yeah. well, Americans with Iranian heritage. Yeah, yeah. So uh, you, you're, you were, were you, where were you raised? Were you raised in? Iran, or were you raised? No, no, no. I was born. Uh, I was born in Istanbul because my father sure. left Iran for business, and he was working in Istanbul. Uh, but then, when I was a year old, we moved back to Tehran for about a year or so, ah. and then we moved from there to Israel, where a Persian Iranian Jewish family. And then, by the age of four, we moved to Milano. And then I told my parents, "Hello, we've been in four countries in four years." Can we stop somewhere? <laughs> so I grew up in Italy. That's why I still have an Italian accent. Because yeah, I you do. Here. You do have an Italian accent. Yeah. Yeah, because I grew up there and I came to US uh, for grad school after college. So, you know, if you yeah. come in high school, maybe you don't have the accent, but I came when I'd finished uh, my undergraduate studies. So I'm an Iranian Jew, born in Turkey, raised in Italy, ended up in US. It's uh, a global nomad. Very so, cool. But, very but cool. I, I cannot go back to Iran because, you know, being a... Yeah. Uh, I used to work for the U.S. government for a couple of years. I'm Jewish. I used to have an Iranian passport, now a U.S. passport. So yeah. I, if I were to go to there, maybe I'd get in, but I don't get out. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> At least yeah. under the current regime. So we'll have to oh. go and visit. Great country, great civilization. But unfortunately, we have a, we have a bad regime in power. Exactly. Well, it's wonderful to have you. And, uh, you know, before we kind of dive into the the, the uh, subject at hand, the, the economy, yeah. and, you know, obviously it's great timing, right? Because yes. we got uh, a bunch of data this week, one of which, one of the data points was GDP. 
that fell uh, 1.4% in the quarter. And I thought I'd hand it, uh, the conversation over to Ryan uh, for a minute or two to give us his, his sense of that report and give us a, uh, you know what, what it means. Right. Yeah, well, I think overall the takeaway is it's a little bit misleading because the drop in GDP was attributed to two pretty volatile components of GDP, inventories and net exports. Uh, so declines in GDP during expansions aren't, I mean, they're kind of uncommon, but last time, last expansion, there was three times that GDP fell. And in each of those times, it was either attributed to inventories or net exports. So we kind of knew this inventory hangover was coming. You know, we added a boatload of inventories in the fourth quarter last year. We weren't going to be able to duplicate that. So inventory subtracted a lot. And then the consumer, we're just buying a boatload of stuff, uh, goods. And a lot of those goods, you know, retail sales are imported. And that's why uh, imports are exceeding uh, exports uh, by a noticeable uh, margin. So overall, you know, it was a little bit of a surprise, but you know, we always knew there was a risk that GDP could fall in the first quarter. So, so you're saying, you're arguing that these inventory, less of an inventory accumulation and the widening out of the trade deficit are kind of one-offs. They're not more fundamental and, th and thus yeah. a negative print. Okay. Yeah. I mean, uh, combined inventories and net exports subtracted four percentage points from GDP. So the first number I really looked at was real final sales uh, to domestic purchasers. That's, you know, that's the, that's the underlying economy. And that was up over 3% annualized in the first quarter, which is an acceleration from what we saw in the second half of last year. So, you know, I think, you know, the economy is slowing, but I don't think uh, it's as bad as the first quarter GDP numbers uh, would otherwise suggest. In fact, I, I think jobless claims are more telling of the state of the economy than GDP is. And we have jobless claims south of 200,000. So it's really hard to be overly pessimistic about the economy right now. About the growth rate in the economy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It well, you didn't around. mention government spending fell. I think defense spending in particular fell mm -hmm. a lot. That field felt a little bit weird too, didn't it? I mean, yeah, in terms uh, of the size of the... Yeah, it was a little bit surprising. We don't have a lot of good source data on government spending. So that, that one's, of all the components of GDP to forecast, that's one of the hardest. Well, you know, the uh, Bernard uh, Yaros, our colleague who follows uh, gover government, uh, care, uh, federal government carefully, pointed out that the deflator for defense spending rose sharply because, mm -hmm. it, you know, tied to oil, because the defense... Uh, Department of Defense consumes a lot of oil, as you can imagine, right. and it's a big part of their, that deflator. So when you see oil prices spike, like we did in Q1 because of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, that caused the deflator to jump, and that depressed significantly depressed the real defense outlay number that appeared in the GDP, mm -hmm. which also feels like a bit of a measurement or one-off kind of fact. Yeah, I mean, the economy, I mean, GDP is going to bounce back in a second. Okay, well, let me ask you this: so, what do you think underlying growth is in the economy, GDP, right now, as of Q1? Well, if you think, I mean, if you look at the last several quarters, it's bouncing all over. We had a couple quarters north of 6%, yeah. then we had one that fell. We're probably three and a half, four. That's year-over-year year growth, actually, 3.5%. Oh, is percent. Yeah, so that, that's growth. probably more accurate of what the economy is running. Yeah. Hey, Nuriel, I don't know, do you, do you watch these data? These You can see we're pretty nerdy about the... the yeah. Uh, the data, the weekly data, or the, the yeah. monthly data. Do you do you follow these GDP numbers uh, as carefully uh, carefully as well, or do you have a view on what happened in the first quarter? Um, 
Yeah, I follow them. Maybe yeah. not as closely as you folks do, but you know, yeah. I I agree with your overall assessment. You know, some of the components of domestic demand, uh, real private consumption was quite fine. Capex spending was fine. Residential investment was fine. So the negative print was, uh, as pointed out, inventories and net exports. You know, the exports uh, with a strong dollar may keep on worsening in some sense. So that one might be a further drag to growth maybe over time. But, you know, the first quarter, even consensus was expected to be weaker, about 1%, in part because uh, people, I think, were thinking that that the delayed effect of Omicron would show up more in the first quarter data rather than the fourth quarter. Uh, And that might have been part of it. One caveat is that, you know, we first had uh, COVID and Omicron. Now we have, uh, you know, the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the impact of it, uh, uh, it's only very, very partially into the Q1 number. So we'll have to see how much of that has a negative impact on the second quarter of economic growth uh, as well. And then there are also the shutdowns are coming out of China because of their own zero COVID tolerance policy that might also negative effect on the supply side, global supply chains. So there may be other types of uh, uh, stagflationary friction, even in the short run, that may push inflation to remain high and weaken economic growth. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Hey, Chris, uh, before we move on, there, there, we had a cornucopia of data. You know, and I'm sure the fodder for our statistics game, which we'll get to yeah. in a few minutes here. <laughs> Of all of the other statistics, GDP obviously was kind of the marquee statistic. Of all the other statistics that came out during the week, is there one that you would call out as important uh, and want to highlight? So you want to go to the statistics game? Or? No, well, uh, I <laughs> wasn't quite going there yet, but we could, we could. But I was that just wondering my... if there's another another one of those uh, uh, the statistics this week that you think would it's particularly important for people to okay. focus on. So I selected for the game what I think is the most important statistic oh, right. of the week. Should but we... uh, but there are certainly, if you want to talk housing, certainly continue to get very strong house price growth uh, numbers so far. Uh, so there's still there, the residential investment uh, component of GDP was still uh, quite strong. So we could go there if you want, but otherwise, play, I'll, okay, you're you able to, to the play game? the game. Okay, let's right. play the game. Let's yeah, play the most game. There's game. only one correct answer to the most important number of the week. What and it's not that? GDP. Well, it's not GDP. It's not even close. Oh, really? so I'll give you a. Yeah. I'll give the, you a trio. Okay, hold it. Can let me. This is part. Oh, of, this okay. isn't. This isn't part. Uh, part of the game. But let me. Let me. Let me get into the mind of Ryan. Uh, mm-hmm. The employment Good cost luck. index. Yep. Ah, they, there you there go. You go. All right. Oh yeah. So this is why I have the trash talk. I gotta <laughs> try to throw you off your game. Say, say, Nuriel, you see how I got him pegged? I know exactly where he's going. You know, yeah. All the time. yeah, you read his mind. That's yeah, impressive. Yeah, read his mind. You know, it's other really close. Uh, okay, so Ryan, uh, tell us about mm-hmm. the ECI, the Employment Cost Index. Well, are we going to play the game? And I got my oh. have to change is up my number here. Well, no, 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 uh, no, no, no. Because no. why is that so important? Go ahead. That, for the Fed. Because they're laser focused on wages because they're concerned about a wage price spiral setting in, which would... You know, keep inflation elevated, raise the risk of a stagflation scenario, which is, you know, the worst case scenario for the Fed. It's a, it's a nightmare scenario for the Fed. So they're paying very, very close attention to wage growth. I mean, Powell himself even said, Fed Chair Powell, recently that the labor market's very tight, but unhealthy. Uh, and we're seeing very, very strong wage growth. And that's going to be a concern that, you know, it's, you know, 
supply chain issues, that's keeping inflation elevated now. Maybe we transition into a period where wages are keeping inflation elevated. Right. Hey, Nuriel, how worried, and this, I'm, I'm, I, I know I'm kind of getting ahead of myself here, but since we're on the ECI, the Employment Cost Index, uh, how worried are you that we're getting into kind of a wage price spiral where wages reflect price inflation and, <clears throat> and then the price inflation f- reflect wages? Obviously, that's a pretty pernicious dark place. You don't want to be there. How, yeah. how big a deal is that? Well, you know, I, I think it's a meaningful risk uh, because, uh, you know, depending on the measures, of course, that you use to measure wage growth, uh, it's in the 5 to 6% range. Uh, that is significantly higher than what it should be if you want to achieve uh, an inflation rate of 2%, you know, with inflation at 2 and, you know, potential productivity growth at one5 you have to have wage growth of a three and a half maximum in order to achieve 2% inflation. So if you are in the five, six range, uh, that's not uh, uh, consistent with that. And what concerns me is that there is a very tight labor market. And uh, one is the unemployment rate, uh, of course, at 3.6%. But the other one is a measure they saw actually think developed by folks at Goldman Sachs of the gap between uh, labor demand and labor supply. Labor demand, uh, the way they measure it is the sum of employment and job vacancies mm. and labor supply is the uh, supply the labor force now that gap between the two is estimated to be about uh, 5.3 million uh, jobs the highest we've had in decades and that's uh, if it remains this high wage growth is going to be north of five percent closer to six and therefore you're not going to be able to achieve uh, uh, an inflation rate of two percent unless there is a massive tightening of financial condition that would require, uh, you know, a recession. Uh, that's the point, you know, the dilemma that the Fed is facing right now is that uh, with stagflationary shocks that increase uh, inflation and reduce economic growth, the trade-off uh, required to achieve a soft landing becomes harder because either you care about inflation and you tighten enough well above neutral to prevent inflation expectation from becoming the anchored, but then you risk a recession or if at some point then uh, you worry about the impact on growth, given that well mandate, and you don't tighten enough, you may have the anchor of inflation expectation, and then you end up into a, in a bad equilibrium. Now, that gap in the labor market is huge. Uh, those who believe in the soft landing story tell you the story that uh, uh, some of the gap is going to be reduced because labor force participation rate is going to rise significantly. So labor supply is going to go up. And uh, if you tighten monetary policy, you reduce labor demand, but the margin where you reduce it is uh, job openings as opposed to employment. And if you can narrow that gap from 5.3 to about 2 million plus, then wage growth can go towards 4% or less. And then you have the soft landing. But it's very knife edge because it requires, uh, in the best scenario, that growth is below potential, around one-ish for over a year. Uh, for that equilibrium to be achieved. And even in that case, it's not so obvious you're going to achieve the soft landing because if inflation is sticky, you may have to push uh, Fed funds rate at more than 35 towards 4% to push inflation uh, down enough. And that leads you to a recession. So whether we get a soft landing or a landing is very knife edge. And of course, there is a spectrum of views between those who believe that the Fed is, is going to be able to make it and those who believe that no, we're going to get a recession. 
Yeah, and I'm going to ask you point blank right now. Who, which, where are you in that spectrum? Well, I'm more on the on the bearish side. I think that uh, I see a, a bunch of first of all of stagflationary pressure continuing. First was COVID, now is Russia Ukraine, now is China, and uh, my piece speaks about medium term forces that are uh, stagflationary. Uh, so that trade off becomes harder where you have more inflation, and you have lower growth. Than, than otherwise. Uh, and it's not just a problem for the Fed, that we have the same problems uh, of high inflation and slowing growth uh, in Europe, in other advanced economies, the only exception being Japan, where inflation is still quite low. And of course, there is inflation also in many emerging markets. So we're going to be also in a period not just of Fed tightening, but it's going to be tightening by the Fed, by the ECB, by the uh, Bank of Canada, by the Bank of England, the Riks Bank. Uh, pretty much any advanced economy and many emerging markets. So that global liquidity tightening is going to have a global impact and spillover effects. Um, and, and I worry that the process of wage price determination is becoming sticky enough that uh, the path that the Fed was having for what uh, core PC will be this year, next year, into 2024 is too optimistic. So for them, the dot plot suggesting that we reach 1.8 at the end of this year and maybe two and a half by the end of next year is already out of the window with 50 basis points increases in May, June, maybe July. By year end, you're already at neutral, and that may not be enough. And if you have to go by next year towards three and a half, four, then I think the risk of a hard landing becomes great. Yeah, so, so, people, so I worry about it. People are uh, couching their uh, views on recession risks in terms of probability. So, for example, I would say, you know, if push comes to shove and someone said, what, what is the probability that the economy enters into recession over the next year? I'd say probably about a third. And if it, if they said, well, what's the probability of recession, the economy entering recession over the next two years? I'd say probably even odds. Do you think about it in those terms? Do you have some probabilities? Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, I, I would agree. Probably over the next 12 months, uh, uh, the Fed tightens, but it's not... Uh, enough to push you into recession. That's why the probability might be only a third. But uh, if I were to be right, and I might be wrong, that the wage price uh, process is too sticky uh, to, to be reduced towards 2% uh, with only a moderate Fed tightening, and then the Fed were, were to go towards 35 to 4%, uh, you know, by the end of next year, then into 2024, the risk of a recession becomes at least uh, uh, even odds. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Hey, Chris, remind me, what are your odds for a recession uh, over the next year and over the next two years? Over the next year, I would, <clears throat> I'm not too far from you. I would say probably 40%. Over the next two years, I'd probably close with uh, 60%. Six, a little higher. You're, so you're, you're out doing Dr. Gloom. You're even gloomier <laughs> than Dr. Gloom. I'm just pointing that out. And, and Ryan, what, what is your, your odds? I'm being realistic. <laughs> I said over the next two years, 70%. Oh, so we're going in. According that to hard landing is that or soft landing is not going to be. They're not going to be able to pull off. Okay. Yeah. okay. I didn't want to be too doomish, but I see that you guys are. Yeah, they, they outdid you, uh, Nuriel. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Hey, uh, before we uh, play the statistics game, uh, I want to go back to something you said about the labor market because you know you pointed out that labor supply demand kind of gap analysis. Yeah. Uh, and you know, one thing that I can't get my mind around is. You know, if you look at that, you'd say, oh, the labor market is at full employment, tight as a drum, uh, you know, nowhere to go here. 
but we are still creating well over half a million jobs per month, which we've been doing for more than a year. We did it in March. We'll see what happens for the month of April next Friday. How can the economy be creating so many jobs if the economy is at full employment? That's just, I can't kind of square that circle. Um, we, we may be close to full employment, but we may not get full employment. Uh, but I think that what, uh, as I said, uh, those who worry about uh, the tightness of the labor market are concerned is that the number of job openings is huge still on top of uh, employment that is growing. But even that increase uh, in employment is only marginally putting a dent on those job openings. And uh, labor supply is improving, you know, labor force participation rate, as we know, drop like a stone is recovering, but it's recovering only very slowly. And there's this debate about whether this uh, great resignation is more of a temporary phenomenon or a more a permanent phenomenon. And I, I'm in between. I don't think it's totally mm. permanent. There'll be some increase, but maybe not enough to increase labor supply. So I think that tightness in the labor market is going gonna, is gonna to remain with us. Uh, and that's going to keep uh, wage growth uh, uh, higher than necessary to, to achieve uh, the 2% inflation rate. So we, we may not quite be there at full employment, but we're pretty darn close no, no matter how you cut yeah. it. That's, that's yeah. for sure. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay. Let, let's play the game. Uh, just to remind the listener, uh, the game, the statistics game is uh, we each uh, uh, put forward a statistic. The rest of the group tries to figure that out through questioning and clues and deductive reasoning. The best question is one that is not so easy that, uh, you know, Ryan gets it, you know, that we don't want that to happen. Uh, and not too hard that, well, you know, no one's going to get, get it. That Mark can't get it. I wasn't going to say that. And um, oh, bonus, uh, if it's, you know, apropos to the topic at hand, and of course, we're talking about the economy, so in the outlook, so uh, that's kind of wide open here. And a lot of statistics this, this past week. So let me, let me, uh, and Nuriel, I'm not going to go to you first because, you know, uh, uh, and you don't have to play the game, Nuriel, yeah, only yeah. if you want to, only if you want to. Okay. Let's go to, let's go to Chris first. Chris, what's your statistic of the week? Well, my, my statistic was 4.5%. 4.5%. Is that the ECI year over year? That is the ECI. Yeah, that is the ECI. It. Yeah. But I'll give you a backup if you'd like. Well, that would have been too easy, wouldn't it, Ryan? That, that would have, that would have been a little... Yeah, yeah. I gave it the year over year. No, oh, okay. You probably were thinking about the yeah, quarter true. percent change. 1.4 is the But quarter. it is the most important statistic of the week. There mm -hmm. you go. Okay. For all the reasons we gave. But I'll give you a backup. Uh, and this is a trio. 0.6%, minus 0.9%, and minus 0.3%. Does it come from GDP? Yeah. All right. Say the, say, say the three statistics again. 0.6%. Minus 0.9% and minus 0.3%. I think Are I think these know. contributions? No. I think, I think. Right. Okay, go for it. Well, hold it. Was it from the GDP report or from the monthly consumption? Oh, okay. uh, it's the monthly consumption. Okay. You're, so, you're okay. correct. Oh. All right. Correct. So, this, so the 0.6 is the real increase in consumer services spending. The minus 0.9 is probably durable goods spending. Correct. And the minus 0.3 is. Non-durable goods? You got it. Oh, got it. very nice. Nuriel, Nuriel, nice. what do you Hello. think, Nuriel? Yeah, you it's all be... data wonk. <laughs> 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 a little impressed. weird, I'd say. 
Hey, yeah. where's the cowbell, uh, Mister uh, Sweet? So yeah. Nuriel, I forgot to tell you if you, you if you uh, show uh, you know above average game acuity, you get a you get you get a cowbell. So that was a pretty weak cowbell, I have to say. Okay, can I provide oh. this statistic myself? Oh, hold yeah. on one second though before you do that because you're next. But I want to I want Chris to explain you know why you know what why did you pick those statistics what's going on well uh, we mentioned consumption actually is yep. is supportive of the of, of gdp so consumers are still spending despite their uh, confidence but their the nature of their spending is is changing we are shifting back towards more services less durables right well certainly as a consequence of the pandemic but that also may have some implications for inflation uh, going forward, given that we've seen most of the or much of the inflation in the durable sector, as we've talked about uh, previously, so more less durables, more services, unless we get the type of wages that Nariel is, is talking about, that that should help to uh, calm some of the inflationary pressure. Hey, here's a, a factoid for you, which I found quite interesting. Uh, if you look at overall consumer spending, real consumer spending mm. uh, since the pandemic hit. So go back to March of 2020 through March of 2022, the last data point. Average annual growth is 2.4%. If you go in the two years prior to the pandemic, real consumer spending growth was 2.3%. So it's right, you know, we're kind of like right on trend. You know, consumer spending is exactly where you would have expected it to be if there had been no pandemic. I found that I find, you know, obviously the big shift, as you pointed yeah, out, right. And, and it's starting to shift back, but, you know, but consumers have, are, have been doing what they've always been doing, you know, at least. In- All right, Nuriel, you're up. Uh, I, you're raring to go. I can tell. You see that he wanted to go before I yeah, even gave him yeah. the green light. He wanted to go. <laughs> All right. Now I'm nervous. Okay. My, my statistics is uh, 3.6%. But uh, the, the easy answer that is the unemployment rate is not the one uh, that I wanted you to oh, get. Okay. There's okay. a different 3.6%. Another 3.6. Something that goes beyond the US. So to give you a hint. Oh, okay. Uh, 3.6%. <laughs> what is it? What'd you say, Ryan? No, I'm, uh, I like going international now. Oh, yeah. Okay. It came out, it it came out this week? A... Uh, about a week ago or so. Week ago. I would say, you know, was. Uh, Slightly more than a week, I would say, but uh, it's recent. So it's not Eurozone CPI core. Was no, up can't be. It's, it's higher than that. In Eurozone it's, it's, now. it's something global. It's not something uh, oh, okay. related. So I'm a global macroeconomist, so I know more about global variables than domestic. <laughs> Sorry about. I'm coughing. I pr- apologize for that. Um, is it a growth? It's growth rate. A growth rate. It is. It is. Is it uh, is it a real economic growth? Uh, uh, yes. Is yes. it uh, is it real GDP growth? Yes. Is it uh, the, the IMF? The forecast? Yeah. That's what I'm yeah. saying. Yeah, the IMF. Yeah. They revise uh, that is unfair to the max because I How's took him down here? the path and then you came in and cherry picked the answer. Hey. <laughs> Don't you think? That's what it sounds oh, like. It was a team effort. Let's say team effort here. It's free oh, riding oh. on what the Marcos getting to. Yeah, that's oh, so, so, that word, uh, their forecast for this year growth 
from 4.4 to 3.6 globally. And also next year's growth is going to be only 3.6. So by global standards, mediocre, let's put it this way. Yeah. And inflation, of course, has been a forecast revise uh, upward. So, so uh, real but, global GDP growth in calendar year 2022, according to the yeah. IMF, is going to be 3.6. And that's and kind also of sort of- calendar year 2023 as well. Oh, oh it's for same, both years. Both years? Oh, I, I'm, yeah, okay. both years. Yeah. Oh, interesting. And what's potential growth, GDP growth? Is it about that? Uh, I think that the globally is higher than that. It's around uh, four and a half or so. Okay. Because emerging markets are, are growing much faster potentially than advanced economies. So I guess it depends on if there's market ba- market dollar based or PPP based. Yeah. Or, yeah. yeah. Okay. Oh, it, it, so so that's below you. So the IMF is saying below potential growth. Probably. Um, I have to check exactly what's their definition of potential, but yeah, let's say right. it's close to below. Certainly yeah. a significant, I would say, slowdown compared to their January forecast. January forecast was 4.4 for this year, but because of uh, what happened with Russia, Ukraine, among others, they are revising it downward and revising upward their forecast for, of course, inflation, but so does everybody else. Yeah. Do, do you, uh, does that feel... How, did, how does that strike you? Is that kind of consistent with your 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 view of growth this year? Or I I think it's a it's a reasonable estimate for reasonable. for this year. The revisions, of course, I mean, you know, for Russia and Ukraine, they expect a total freefall, uh, significant drop uh, in growth in Europe uh, because uh, proximity to Russia, Ukraine, because of greater reliance on energy, and natural gas, uh, because of the trade and financial linkages, and even the impact on consumer and business sentiment. Uh, some spillovers also uh, to Asia, slowdown of growth in Asia, uh, in part because uh, slowdown of Europe implies less exports from Asia to Europe, in part because tightening of financial condition by the Fed affects uh, Asia, EM, in part because what's happening in China is slowing down growth in China that affects then growth throughout Asia. And the rise in uh, uh, commodity prices is quite negative because most of emerging Asia tends to be a commodity uh, importer as opposed to exporter. The commodity exporter tend to be, say, Middle Eastern uh, oil exporting countries. So, so it's a it's a weakening of the global economic outlook uh, in a stagflationary direction, revision upward in in inflation expectations and revision downwards in growth uh, forecast and expectations. So, not a stagflation, but stagflation in terms of its direction. Got it, got it, and I, and I do want to come. We're definitely coming back after the game and talk a little bit more, uh, talk a lot more about recession stagflation. But Ryan, what's your statistic of the week? Five point two percent. Five point two percent. Hmm. It's a statistic that came out this week. It did. We already talked uh, a little bit about it, so I have a backup around, if you want it. Is it one of the statistics we've already talked about? You so you one of the reports. Yep. One of the reports. It's, oh, it's, it's not the East back to the ECI, is oh, it? Oh, it's, it's the ECI. Uh, mm-hmm. Core PC? Nope. It's it's in the ECI. It's it's in just, the it doesn't ECI. get as much attention as it should, but what's the 5.2%? Is that year-over-year growth for private sector workers excluding oh my bonus God. pay? Are you like bugging my emails? How did you get that? I thought oh. for sure you would not get that one. Oh, my gosh. I got it? Yeah. Oh, okay. Where's the cowbell? Oh, Where's the cowbell? 
Oh, I see, am. I'm Nuriel, extremely Nuriel, I am super, I am, super wonk. I'm super deep wonk. in his mind, though. I yeah. got him nailed. I got him nailed. <laughs> he thinks he's so smart. Oh, my mm-hmm. gosh. Either you're a sure mind you're reader or you know every statistic under the sun. That's it. <laughs> That is so funny. Uh, that's my go-to hesitate. number. You see how I did that, Ryan? You, you yeah. need to take a lesson there. You see, no hesitation, just you know, methodical. Yeah, you're, you're laser focused. That was impressive. Okay. Why is that so important? Why do you why do you pick that one? I mean, that's so incentive pay, which is captured in the overall ECI, can be very volatile. So when you strip it out, it's this is kind of like uh, wages' version of the core CPI. You take out the volatile components. And that's what you know, we have with uh, nominal wage growth for private workers, north of 5% year over year. It's yeah. very strong. We only have data going back to 2006, but it's the strongest that we've had since 2000, like on record we talked, since. We've talked about this in the past, but just to get it out there, you know, the employment cost index is a quarterly series from Bureau of Labor Statistics and thought to be the, the, the quote unquote best measure of wages and compensation because it controls for mix, uh, occupation, mm-hmm. industry mix. And other measures of, of wages more or less don't. Like, so the st- average hourly earnings, which comes out with the monthly employment report, that has no m- uh, control for a mix. And, and right now that's all juiced. I think that's, you know, almost 7% year over year or something like that. But the 5%-ish, which we're getting from the ECI, feels like that's kind of underlying wage growth. Correct. Yeah. Would you say? Right. Yeah, I don't even pay attention to average hour. Well, yeah, which is obviously below inflation, so real wage wages are declining. At least. Correct. All right. Uh, very good. I, I I took great pleasure in that one. I you know I'm a little. I've got a lot of statistics. I got a lot of good ones. I'm I'm a little um nervous because I you know I'm, I might give you too easy one. What if I what if I give you one? If it's too easy, I'll give you a hard one. Is that okay? That's fine. Okay. Uh, and the easy one is 6.2%. 6.2% is a statistic that came out this week. Is it housing related? It is not housing related. Yeah. No, indeed it's not. Oh, I thought this was going to be easy. Okay. Um, has, it goes back to the consumer, uh, related to, um, you know, the, is it inflation? The, what is it? Is it inflation? Inflation related? Not inflation related. No. Uh, oh, came out is today. This a savings rate. Savings rate. Saving, uh, yeah. Yeah. Personal savings rate. Six point two. By the way, it's the. I think if I did the uh, my look back correctly, that's the lowest saving rate since 2013. That's the lowest rate since 2013. So that means consumers are now starting to spend down a bit of the excess savings that they accumulated during the pandemic. Still quite prodigious amount of excess saving. By our calculation, $2.6 trillion still out there in excess saving, but it is now starting to roll over a little bit. Hey, Nuriel, let me ask you about that. How do you think about that in the context of the, the doom and gloom? You know, uh, During the pandemic, consumers sheltered in place, didn't spend, saved. And of course, there was a lot of government support. A lot of that got saved or fair share got saved. So you got all this cash you know, out there uh, sitting in people's account, bank accounts. Doesn't that provide a nice cushion here to consumers and spending and the economy more broadly allow it to kind of navigate through without going into recession. How, do you have a view on that? Well, uh, you could make that argument, but you could make the opposite argument by saying that uh, the biggest problem we're facing right now is the rise in inflation. And that rise in inflation is a combination of, uh, on one side, these uh, 
supply bottlenecks, and there's a variety of them from COVID to Russia, Ukraine, to what's happening now in China. But then on the, uh, on the demand side, of course, we had extremely loose monetary and fiscal policy. And the fiscal part was a massive transfer to the household sector that led to a buildup of excess savings and pent-up demand. And now that we're reopening, that leads to a significant robustness in uh, consumption. And the consumption numbers have been quite strong. So if you worry about inflation and overheating of the economy, keeping inflation high, having those excess savings that can be run down, if it's another 2.6 trillion. Uh, and actually, if uh, the great resignation continues, uh, people who are out of the labor market where those savings will have to spend them to, to live, uh, that puts a further pressure on demand. So you have supply bottleneck, you have strong demand because of loose monetary and fiscal policy, and the risk then of a hard landing becomes greater. Mm, so nice. I, I see it as a, as a risk factor rather than a positive one. Got it. Chris, is that, how do you think about it? Do you have a different perspective? Yeah, I, I actually think of it more as a buffer, as a potential positive. In, in the face of higher inflation, right, the consumers have certainly some savings to draw on to pay these higher prices, at least for a while. Now, demographically, it differs, right? I think that's a very important point to make. So certainly, these savings are really concentrated at the higher end. So it might provide that buffer, but only for a select uh, number of households. You still have... Uh, fragility at the bottom end where people are actually running out of savings at this point in the face of uh, rents and inflation uh, prices on uh, gas or or food yeah you know nuriel we uh calculate this uh, concept of excess saving across different demographic groups based on data from the fed's financial accounts and um, distributional financial accounts survey of consumer finance it, it's, a, it's a bit lag, so we don't have Q1, but it, looking at this data through Q4 across income group, what's really interesting, I, I found interesting, is that the a decline in the excess saving already has begun, but uh, guess which groups are pay, uh, uh, using that excess saving most quickly? You, I would have thought the lo low income groups, right? You yeah, would have thought that. that yeah. you, know, you know who it is? It's kind of the high middle like the 60 to 90. And that's okay. because they didn't really, they didn't get government support or a lot of government support. And they didn't, weren't able to shelter in place like the high income households were. So they had much less coming in and they are now spending down, you know, more of that uh, excess saving a lot more quickly. So I found mm -hmm. that pretty, pretty interesting. Yeah, it is. Um, I, I, okay. I want to give you one more statistic. It's a hard statistic. Uh, but maybe you'll get it fast. Uh, but just to, cause I think it's a really important one, a really cool one that came out this week, uh, 82 basis points, 82 basis points. And I'll give you a hint. Chris should get this statistic. And Nuriel, there's, we have a running joke here. Chris, uh, only picks mortgage housing rates? statistics. What is it? The rise in mortgage rates since the beginning of the year? No, no, it's, that's much, that's been a lot. It was 3% at the beginning More and now it's five and. Oh, okay. Uh, so homeownership vacancy related? Yes, indeed. Oh. Yes, it is. Yep. Homeownership va uh, vacancy was rate. It the, was the homeownership rate? It's, no, that didn't go up that much. Uh, no, that is the homeownership vacancy rate. Oh, it is. Oh, yeah. Oh, vacancy. Oh, correct. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right. If you look yeah, at the vacancy rate uh, across uh, homes, uh, occupied housing stock, uh, not for rent, occupied housing stock, 82 basis points. That's a record low going back to World War II. Goes to the housing shortage. You know, very right. severe housing shortage. And the house price gains we've been getting up until now. 
But anyway, okay. So let's, uh, Nuriel, before we kind of dive in deeper here, can we define terms? Uh, you know, I think we all know what a recession is, sort of, but how do you, because you, in your Guardian piece, which by the way, I recommend to everyone, it was a great piece this past week in the Guardian. You talk about stagflation and you mentioned that concept a number of times in the conversation so far. How do you define stagflation? How do you think about it? Mm -hmm. Well, there are maybe two ways of thinking about it. True stagflation would be a situation where you have uh, inflation rates that are significantly higher than the target of a central bank together with an economic recession. So, you know, in the 1970s, given to all shock, we had the double digit inflation and we had two severe recession in 74, 75 and, and the double deep recession in 82. So that will be a true stagflation. Um, the other way to think about stagflation will be stagflationary shocks that everything else equal, increase inflation and reduce uh, you know, economic growth, but they don't lead necessarily to a recession. So short of a recession, you have a significant slowdown of economic growth. And I would say that the Russia-Ukraine is such a stagflationary shock. That's what has led the IMF to revise upward their forecast for inflation in advanced economies emerging market this year and significantly revise downward their growth forecast as well. So that's a, something goes in a stagflationary direction. As so, opposed to be a true stagflation. So, so in the United States right now, three point six percent unemployment, eight percent CPI inflation. You would you wouldn't consider that stagflation, or would you? No, I would not consider that the stagflation. I don't know the the editorial board of the Wall Street Journal. They're a bit biased. They said that Q1 data were stagflation because you had recession and inflation at eight percent. But we know that was in partly a technical reason why we have had. Uh, that negative uh, growth print, and you need at least two quarters of negative economic growth to have a definition of a, of a recession. But I, I would say, suppose that we are in a scenario uh, in which uh, inflation remains uh, stubbornly above the Fed target, the Fed tightens in order to push it lower, and that causes a recession. And uh, the data suggested in the United States an increase in the three-month uh, moving average of the unemployment rate of at least 0.5% leads uh, uh, almost inevitably historically to a recession. Then you could be in a situation, uh, you were speaking uh, before about the probability of a recession in the next uh, two years, whether it's 50 or 60 or 70. If you end up in that recession, most likely you end up in that recession together with inflation being above 2%. Whether it's going to be three or four, I don't know. But I would say, uh, if you have a recession, you have inflation above target, that's a stagflation. It's not as bad as the 70s when inflation was double digit, and then you had a really severe unemployment. But uh, technically speaking, uh, that outcome will be a true stagflation. We're going to end up in a recession, and you have not achieved your inflation target. So right. that's the risk. Once we're thinking about the recession, most likely we have to think about the stagflationary recession in the next couple of years. What's, unless what's uh, unless uh, the Fed pushes the inflation down to 2% and causes the recession by doing that, and you achieve inflation at 2 and you have a recession. Uh, but I think it's more likely that if inflation is persistent and you're trying to achieve uh, 2, it stays above 2 and then you have a recession and that's a stagflation. 
Oh, okay. So just to, to paraphrase, if we have very slow growth and or a recession, but inflation remains persistently high, yeah, you know, above that two percent target in a meaningful way, like three, four percent is or five. Yeah. but persistent, not not, you know, it may come down, it may be yeah. elevated, but come down as the recession plays out. But you're saying yeah. it remains persistent even with the slower growth. In, yeah, in a, that's a sta- that's stagflation in your mind. In well, a pure recession and inflation, say four, I would call it the stagflation. Okay. If, if growth goes to one percent, technically, it's not a recession; it's a yeah. growth recession. Yeah. The growth below potential again will be a stagflationary direction. Uh, technically speaking, you know, this question of semantics of how you want to define yeah. stagflation, of course, but yeah. uh, will be an outcome uh, that is stagflationary. I would say, yeah, yeah, uh, okay, that makes sense. I mean, I, I've the kind of the way I've thought about it is that for there actually to be stag uh, stagflation, that has to be a period of persistently high unemployment and persistently high inflation. High inflation yeah. is anything above, you know, close above two, certainly closer to three or four. Yeah. But unemployment that's, you know, four to five to six, not not below four, something like that. It yeah. have to be yeah. something but, like that. Well, it has to be a rising unemployment rate that is associated with at least two consecutive quarters of negative economic growth. And we okay. know that even a 0.5% in the unemployment rate will lead to that recession. Uh, once you start having going up with unemployment rate, it goes much higher. So yes, even if it's a mild recession and the unemployment rate goes from 3.6 towards uh, 5-ish or 6-ish, and you have inflation around 3-4, that's a, not a typical recession because during the global financial crisis, we had severe recession and we had low inflation, and for a while we had deflation, meaning inflation was below 2% and it for a few months was actually negative. This will be instead a stagflationary recession because inflation for the first time will be in a long time well above target while you do have a recession. Yeah. Okay. And, and normally, normally, you know, normally if you have overheating of the economy and you have inflation high and growth high, recession might be associated with a tight monetary policy that pushes the economy in a recession and pushes inflation uh, below target. But that's uh, when you have a negative aggregate demand shock through tight monetary policy. But if you have a negative supply shock uh, that reduces growth and increases inflation, and then you have tight monetary policy, you end up with a recession and inflation still above target. So this is a stagflationary recession. So to get stagflation, you need to have persistent negative aggregate supply shocks. That yeah. is the worry that I have. Yeah, and that, that's a great point and, and, and resonates with me. You're saying, look, we got nailed by the pandemic. That's a massive supply shock to the global economy. We got nailed by the Russian invasion of Ukraine. That's a massive supply shock to the economy. No surprise then we're in a, in a situation where we're kind of grappling with the potential for a stagflationary environment because of those supply shocks. And then you go on to say that, look, there's a a lot of other things out there that feel like they could be significant supply shocks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, those are more medium-term forces that are not in the short run. But if I take, uh, I have a view that uh, uh, we are at the end of this period of 30 years of great moderation, where inflation was low and growth was robust. Uh, I think we're going to move gradually in the direction of uh, a period of uh, what I would call great uh, inflationary instability. And again, I'm not talking about hyperinflation 
or not even about uh, double-digit inflation. But you know, if you had inflation going from two to five percent advanced economies, that has massive consequences not only for the economy but also for financial market like bond yields, credit spreads, the stock market, you name it. And you know, in my latest piece, I've written. Uh, it's not just on the garden, it's the piece on Project Syndicate that is uh, mm. syndicated around the world. Uh, I speak about 11 potential sources of negative uh, aggregate uh, supply shocks over the medium term. You know, I don't have time to go over all of them, but uh, briefly, uh, you know, deglobalization and protectionism, reshoring of manufacturing and uh, disruptions in global supply chains aging in populations both in advanced economies and emerging markets, restrictions to migration from south to north, uh, increased decoupling between US and China, uh, global climate change, pandemics that may come back, cyber warfare, uh, income and wealth inequality leads then now to uh, fiscal policy to help uh, the workers, the wager earners, and those left behind. Uh, geopolitical conflicts today is Russia, Ukraine. Tomorrow could be US, Israel, Iran, could be North Korea, could be eventually a conflict on Taiwan. And you know the role of semiconductors there. And finally, uh, we're weaponizing the role of the US dollar by imposing trade and financial sanctions against our strategic rivals. And then they're going to decouple from us. So we may be in a world that is where uh, you know financial links, international reserve currencies, the role of the dollar, May weaken, that may weaken the dollar, the inflationary. So these are all medium-term forces that, in my view, might be stagflationary over time. Yeah, Even I mean, a few of them would be important. If more of them occur, those are all things that increase cost of production, reduce potential growth, and they are stagflationary. Now, uh, there's, a, there's a lot there, and we obviously yeah. can't go down each yeah. one of those. Exactly. And that sounds like a book, doesn't it? Some, someone, this well, there is a part of my book, uh, there yes, are a couple exactly. of chapters exactly yeah. on this topic. Right. Yeah, there are at least two chapters of the book on, on the risk of a return to inflation and stagflation. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. that there are also demand you... factors that, in my view, can lead there, uh, but uh, there are also supply factors as well. But the, the, the list you gave, and yeah. I found it impressive that there were 11. Not, I yeah. would have stopped with 10, just saying, Nuriel, just a nice round 10. But, would it okay. be nicer 10? Yeah. <laughs> like the 10 yeah. commandments. What you say? Or the yeah. 10 plagues, right? Yeah. 10 yeah. plagues of Egypt. There you, <laughs> there you go. That's right. Exactly. You know, um, it, they, they weren't rank ordered. Were they in your mind in some way in terms of chronology or terms of severity or uh, likelihood? Likelihood? No. No, because, you know, when we speak about deglobalization, of course, uh, it could be extreme, could be globalization, could be globalization, you know, people using different terms is a direction. I think that we're going in a world where there'll be more restriction to the trade in goods, in services, in the movement of capital, the movement of labor, in the trade in technology, data information. How severe it's going to be depends on lots of factors, including politics and geopolitics. So that can be as important or more important than, say, global climate change. And global climate change is also stagflationary for a number of reasons I can discuss if needed. So, okay, so it's, it's not ranking them in, in order of importance. Each one of them could be more severe or less severe, depending okay, me, on a bunch of let things. Me, let, me pick, let me try to identify one by asking, Yes, which one of those do you think is kind of not well appreciated as 
a risk. I mean, all I mean, all of those are risks that you know that people have thought about. You've thought about. You've written about. You've talked about. Uh, uh, which one of those is least appreciated in your mind in terms of being a threat and could lead to kind of that stagflation scenario that we've been talking about? Well, maybe the one that is least appreciated is paradoxically global climate change. Because okay. everybody's worried about global t- climate change and uh, the damage that global climate change can, uh, can induce and what can be done about it in terms of mitigation, adaptation, and you name it. But I think that uh, if you think about the inflationary impact of global climate change, there are many channels that are important. Channel number one is that uh, we rightly want to decarbonize and we've been bashing uh, big oil and producer of fossil fuels and they have underinvested massively in new capacity. Right? The shareholders, the banks, everybody saying underinvest. But unfortunately, our in- the increase in the production of renewable energy has not been uh, sufficient to compensate for the fall in the capacity in, uh, in uh, fossil fuels. Demand is growing because we're returning to global growth, and therefore there is a structural imbalance between demand and supply. And therefore that's gonna lead, regardless of what's happening in Russia, Ukraine, to a super cycle in, uh, in energy. So that's one of the consequences of global climate change. Secondly, you know, global climate change leads to uh, weather is rising sea levels as opposed to hurricanes, as opposed to droughts, as opposed to fires, to a significant damage in economic activity mm. and specifically in agriculture. I mean, people worry about Russia, Ukraine and impact on food prices, but there is a massive drought in the West of the US from the Colorado all the way to California. And uh, it's not just the Middle East, it's not just Sub-Saharan Africa. And as you know, two thirds of all fruits and vegetables uh, in the US uh, and nuts are produced uh, in California. And you need uh, for the cattle, you know, having water and Lake Powell, Lake Mead are at uh, 100 years of low levels and so on. So some farmers in California prefer to sell their uh, water rights rather than uh, producing food. So mm-hmm. that, that's another channel. And the third channel thing is important is that uh, as we move to renewable energy, uh, we need actually uh, to use energy to produce, uh, say, uh, electric batteries and things of that sort that require lithium, palladium, and lots of aluminum, and lots of stuff that uses energy. So there's a risk of what people refer to as greenflation, that actually the rise in oil and energy prices increases the cost of production of those uh, inputs that are necessary for going in the direction of green and renewable energy as well. So these are all channels that are, I would say, stagflationary that I don't think are well considered. Uh, yeah. People really worry about global climate change because you know it's bad for the environment, it's bad for the economy, and this and that. But there is an inflationary impact that over time becomes severe on food, yeah. on uh, production of goods and services, on energy, on lots of other things. That uh, leaving aside that actually. And a huge uh, part of the stock of uh, even real estate could be damaged. I mean, if you're in Florida, everything is moving there. But what happened in Miami with that building collapsing, in my view, is a canary in a coal mine of how rising sea level and hurricanes can destroy a, a huge part of the capital stock, whether it's commercial or residential real estate, over time. And now insurers and investors in real estate are start to think about how global climate change may impact it the value of those assets and how much they could become stranded assets. That's why yeah. central banks are worried about climate change, about 
the financial stability. Some of the impact might be uh, on uh, not just energy becoming stranded assets, but parts of real estate becoming a stranded assets. That's another thing that has to be considered, for example. Yeah, very interesting. So <clears throat> the transition costs uh, from getting here to there uh, certainly raise the, the supply side event. And I, I guess the hope is that this transition occurs over a long enough period of time that it doesn't become, you know, a macroeconomic event, or at least not to a significant degree. You know, insurance rates rise, you know, people move in response to that. Uh, we go from fossil fuel to green energy over time. But, you know, uh, that, I think that's the hope. It's the hope. But, you know, going from um, uh, fossil fuels to renewable requires one, providing, you know, Biden administration that this build but better plan, a trillion dollar and half of it was for uh, incentivating and subsidizing that transition. Uh, that money is not there. So both the US and Europe have a goal of reducing net uh, uh, greenhouse gas emission by 50% US, 55% by the end of the decade. I think it's mission impossible. Two, you need to have carbon taxes that are uh, 20 or 30 times higher than the average globally that you have right now. And with uh, energy prices rising and oil fuel prices rising, the idea of increasing now uh, carbon taxes is totally politically impossible. If anything, actually, many countries are cutting uh, fuel taxes as a way of uh, reducing the impact on households of this spike in energy prices. So there's a lot of talk about uh, uh, decarbonizing and renewable energy, but we're doing very little about it. Uh, and therefore, that's one of my concerns that... Uh, there's too much talk about it, but it's mostly rhetorical, and we're not going to achieve those targets. And the and the plan is going to become, you know, one and a half to two percent is mission impossible. We'll be lucky if we get to three, and there's a risk of a gap of three. And three is a disaster for the global economy over the medium term. Okay, I think I think we need more than one drink between chapters. <laughs> Just saying. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, there's it's a full funny chapter on this issue in my book. Yeah, I know. It's, it's, it's the funny. solutions are too costly to be politically acceptable. That, Mitigation, yeah, this net zero emission is a mission impossible. Adaptation will be too costly. Say in Manhattan, they have a plan to build levees uh, near the Verrazzano Bridge to avoid uh, the rising sea level from destroying Manhattan. The project alone will be $125 billion, will take 20 years. And even if you protect Manhattan, if the sea level rises, then the water has to go somewhere, it's gonna flood New Jersey Shore or Long Island, right? So oh. and there are thousands. New Jersey, of oh well, world, okay. You know, half of right. world population hey, hey, hey. is near the coast. <laughs> so, so, so mitigation doesn't look likely. Adaptation is usually expensive, and uh, geoengineering is a freak science so far. So it's easy to talk about uh, net well, zero achieving funny, it is, uh, is much harder. The frustrating thing, I think. For economists is i think we know what the answer is and that is just raise the price of carbon please yeah. and do it fast yes. it'll work yeah, yeah. so you but, need gasoline at uh, 10 or 15 dollars uh, yeah well uh, well so, maybe not immediately but possible. you know huh? yeah anyway <laughs> hey I, I do want i know we're running short of time i have two other questions for you though one is yeah. going back to recession stagflation what indicators do you uh look at to gauge you know 
where the economy is headed and what the uh, probabilities are of the economy going to recession or stagflation. Now, you know, there's been a lot of debate discussion around the shape of the yield curve. I'll just throw that out there. But are there, do you, what do you feel about the yield curve or what other indicators are you looking at to try to gauge where we're headed? Um, yeah, the yield curve uh, has been a reasonably good predictor, but not a perfect one. Uh, and it depends also which part of the yield curve you're looking and how inverted it is and for how long and you name it. With brief inversion, but it's not very inverted right now. Uh, I think that the, the important thing is going to be, first of all, uh, to look whether there's a persistency of these negative supply shocks. You know, if China keeps on locking down more and more, that's going to have global impacts on, uh, on global supply chains. If this conflict in Russia, Ukraine gets to the point in which, uh, say, you have a full shutdown of uh, exports of natural gas from Russia to Europe, I think the folks at JP Morgan said you could have a doubling in almost a doubling in oil and natural gas prices. That extreme scenario, if it happens all at once, uh, those will be severely uh, stagflationary. So those are factors that are on the supply side. And then uh, we have to monitor very much uh, what happens uh, to, to wage inflation. Mm. If, if there is a de-anchoring of inflation expectation, if this wage growth is in the 5-6% range and is not falling, if these measures of the um, the labor market gap between supply and demand, uh, the tightness that uh, doesn't go away. I think the risk that then uh, wage inflation remains high, price inflation remains high, and then inflation being higher than wage inflation erodes on real incomes that eventually also slows down demand. Uh, those are all variables that are worth considering. Got it. Got it. Uh, okay. So we're going to end the conversation uh, in a bit different way. So you, you know you've made a really strong case for uh, the you know the the threats out there to the economy and the economic expansion and the possibility of recessions and stagflation. How take the other side? Why, if you're wrong, why are you wrong? Uh, you know what could make this turn out better, much better than you think uh, it will turn out. Um. Well, there are some cyclical factors and there are some that are more secular. Uh, on the cyclical side, uh, maybe the Fed is uh, either good enough or lucky enough to, to pull a soft landing. And that depends very much on the price-wage mechanism and how much there is a de-anchoring, uh, not only of inflation expectation, but also how much there is a wage-price spiral. And one could make arguments one way or another, but uh, one could, could argue that things are going to end up with a soft landing. Uh, the second factor, I spoke about uh, many stagflationary, uh, how to say, trends in the global economy, but of course, those are optimists are thinking about technology and technological innovation. One, increases the economic pie. Two, reduces the cost of production, a variety of uh, all the new goods and services. So the optimist on growth, on productivity growth and on inflation remaining low would argue that uh, uh, technological innovation is both deflationary, but positively deflationary. It's like a positive aggregate supply shock that reduces cost and increases the production output and productivity. Uh, so over the long term, I think that that might be true. Uh, but uh, first of all, uh, we don't see yet the impact of these uh, uh, robotic automation, AI, and so on in the macro data. They're not yet in the productivity data. 
uh, it's hard to, uh, to see that. Uh, two, it leads to significant disruptions. And I have a whole chapter in my new book about uh, what's the future of jobs and of labor income. And it's not just the manual jobs, it's not just the cognitive jobs. Uh, there are extreme scenarios in which even the more creative jobs, even your job and mine, uh, may be eventually done better by an AI or a machine learning. Oh, you know, uh, maybe yeah. maybe you already... and I are better than a AI today to predict what the Fed will do. But maybe tomorrow an AI takes all the speeches, all the data, and understands the reaction function of the Fed better than you and I do. So even uh, uh, economic analysts might become, uh, might become <laughs> how to say, obsolete. You cannot rule it out, right? There are already I, well, uh, some oh, financial I, me, reporting of... Let me say, paper. in my lifetime, I don't think that's going to happen, Nuriel. I don't think so. <laughs> well, you're, Maybe in Ryan's lifetime. That's possible. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Uh, we're not going to obsolete, but maybe Ryan will. Yeah, maybe Ryan, <laughs> no. yeah. Yeah, I, you're, hopefully you're no. saving. Hopefully you have a higher the, than a 6.2% save, savings rate. <laughs> yeah. So I worry that actually uh, innovation, AI, robotic, uh, on one side increases the economic pie, but as we know, is also increasing inequality uh, because it's uh, capital intensive, skill buys, and labor saving. So if you own the machines and the robots, you do well. If you're in the top 10, 20% of the distribution of skills, maybe you still become more productive, but everybody else, white collar, blue collar, their jobs and income gradually is replaced by the machine, and that's going to lead to a backlash. Same way in which uh, the rising inequality driven by some of the aspects of trade and globalization led to a backlash against uh, globalization. You could have a, uh, you know, a, a war against the machines. So yeah. you cannot rule it out as well. Well, I, I found it very informative. I asked you to play the other side of the coin, and you did, you did it admirably for a little bit of time, but you just couldn't help yourself. <laughs> it went right back to the dark. Hey, Dr. I, Doom I you, is there. Dark yeah, is yeah, there. yeah, yeah. It's like, Dark I can't face. get beyond that. Yeah. But I, 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 you know, I'm telling you, I hear you, and all the, the things that you brought up are really good points, and obviously challenges, and we, we always have challenges. But at the end of the day, you, you got to admire the ingenuity of the capitalist system and the ability to adjust and respond to challenges. And, and you know, particularly the American capitalist system, I mean, it, it, if you can figure out how to let people make money, they figure out how to solve problems. So again, going back to car, you know, uh, back to climate change, just put a price on the carbon and people, good things will happen. You know, people will figure it out. So, uh, you know, I, I, that's the optimist optimist in me that you know you know when push comes to shove we what's that old adage that uh from winston churchill about americans he said something like they try everything and then ultimately do the right thing you know something yeah, like yeah. that effect uh you know i just keep going back to that i feel yeah, like you know yeah. we'll do the right thing but anyway yeah. it was a wonder it was wonderful to have you i really appreciate you taking the time and pro uh, providing your perspective and i wish you the best of luck with the book, I'm definitely yeah. going to buy it, uh, and um, uh, I will definitely have, have a bottle of whiskey or vodka. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. Gonna, you know, I'm going to have a drink, <laughs> at least one drink per chapter. Yeah, one drink per chapter. So thank you, Nuriel. Take care. Yeah, great pleasure being with all right, you thanks all. Thanks a lot. Really so thank you. Thank you. And to the listener, thank you for attending this week's uh, podcast, and we'll be back with you uh, next week. Take care now. Mm -hmm.